Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence, learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. We have a fun show in store today. Time Magazine named my guest today one of the world's 100 most influential people. A seven-time book author with several New York Times bestsellers, he and his firm that operates across five continents are expert in transforming brands and culture. Since 2000, they've earnestly put the consumer at the heart so that their clients reconstruct themselves based on customer needs. How awesome is this? They really get back to basics. In more than 80 countries, they've conducted more than 4,000 in-home consumer interviews and 2,000 business-to-business customer interviews to understand how to reposition businesses. Clients include the likes of Pepsi, Nestle, Google, just to name a few. I'm thrilled to welcome my fascinating friend, live from Zurich, Switzerland, Martin Lindstrom. Molly, what an honor to be on your amazing show. I can just see you smiling in front of me right now. I am absolutely beaming, my friend. And I do have to say, I remember, I think, I do think that maybe the first time we crossed paths, it was an early morning at one of Marshall's meetings. I was doing yoga on the deck, and I think you were swimming. Is do I? <laughs> it was. I was trying to maintain what I call the water moment. I have this theory that creativity. That's the story. Just back up here for a second because this is fascinating. I actually was starting to map down my degree of creativity for a while. I felt I was losing creativity. So every minute I would sort of do a little dot on a, on a chart I had. And I realized over time that my most creative moments were actually in the swimming pool. So I would, like a stupid guy, I would bring a notepad with me and a pencil and I would place it in the end of the swimming pool and I would swim back and forth and, and brainstorm while I was swimming. And that became my water moment, the moment where I could sort of reflect on things and be creative. And that was actually just when I did that, you and I connected because I'd just been brainstorming on my new book. Can you believe it? So here we go. It's a true story. Wow, 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 wow. So much to um, uncover there. Listen, your, root, your work is rooted in solid scientific research. You've done sophisticated studies on consumer psychology. Before going there, I'm most keen for listeners to learn about the evolution of your own psychology, how you became who you are. And frankly, Martin, from your accomplishments, you seem superhuman. So, you know, it can be intimidating for folks. And you and I both know you weren't born on a magic carpet that flew you around the world, sprinkling fairy dust to help companies in profound ways. So, my friend, would you uh, kindly give yourself permission not to talk about the business and rather tell us about your early days? Perhaps start with your earliest, uh, earliest childhood memory. Well, I wasn't born on a magic carpet, but I was born in a Lego bed. And I'm not kidding, because when I was a kid, I loved Lego. And I still built my own Lego bed. And I was really proud of it. And, and by the way, I slept in it for two years. And if, if some of you guys listening are intrigued by this, thinking I should do the same, 
don't do it because you wake up every morning with dots on your entire bed, which is a back, which is not particularly <laughs> fun, right? <laughs> but my story actually began uh, way back then where I was a huge fan of Lego and I built up a Legoland in my mom and my dad's garden. And um, what was fascinating about it was that no one showed up when I opened the doors. So two days later, I went down to a local print office. I persuaded them to put an ad in the paper. And guess what? I had 131 visitors showing up. There was just one problem. Visitor number 130 and visitor 131 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. They said it was their brand. I said, no, it's my brand. I bought the boxes, right? I was 12 years of age, right? So um, the owner of Lego literally heard about this story. Now, remember, I'm from Denmark. Uh, Lego is Danish. So he was living somewhat around the corner. And he went into his car and he visited me. And it was almost like, you know, God was visiting you. Right? If you can imagine Villa Bonka Chocolate Factory type of story here. Here's the owner of Lego comes to your backyard and look at your Legoland. So... He said to me, do you know what, uh, stop this nonsense. Why don't you just come and work for us instead? So I got a job at Lego at the age of 12, the youngest kid in history of Lego. And I think in many ways this shaped me for multiple reasons because I later on asked the folks at Lego, why did you employ this kid? And they said, well, because you helped us to see the world through the eyes of a kid to understand our audience better. And I think this has really stayed with me ever since. Um, because what I've learned is that the, the truth is not necessarily what you and I see. The truth is always in between. And it's always a mixture of multiple point of views. And I do feel in our world, we've become so obsessed with seeing the world from one point of view. Uh, so what I've done ever since, and that's actually is my theme, that is to see the world from another point of view and, and, and start to understand why is it looking like that and how can we change it if it has to change. O-M-G. That's extraordinary. I can't believe you would sleep and wake up with dots on your back. <laughs> no, it's, no, I can tell you a lot of crazy stories. Like that. I'll tell you another story. No, um, in fact, when I was eight years of age, my, my dad, he had a lot of problems at work. And he was a CEO of a very small, a smaller company, but he had a lot of politics and bureaucracy. And I remember I thought with myself, my God, I don't want to grow up and go into this mess. So we sat at the kitchen table, uh, my mom, uh, my dad and I, I was a lonely child. And I said to my dad, you should, you should stop working. I mean, really brilliant advice right now, <laughs> eight years old, stop working, right? And my dad, he looked at me and I'll never forget it. And he said, you're right, I should stop working. So if I stop working, what, what should I do? I said, let's sail around the world, I said to him. And my dad just said, yeah, let's do that. Uh, so uh, my mom and dad uh, literally quit their work uh, for two years. We jumped on a boat. We sailed around the world under one condition, which I think every single American mother will cringe when I tell you what the condition was. The condition was I had to earn the money on the entire trip so we could afford sailing around the world. So uh, it was a bit of a pressure as an eight year old, right? So uh, I actually already at that stage was this huge Lego fan. And I started to collect all my bricks, build up small Lego men, each of them displaying local flags for each of the countries we would sail to. I put a sort of a necklace around it. And then I took 150 small Lego men with me. 
And I'll never forget, we sailed through the canals down to Paris on Sien and was lying in the Latin Quarter where he was selling all these books. And I was pretty desperate because literally I was now tasked with the, you know, to the, with the mission of getting food on the table. So I had to earn the money, or at least that was what I was told, right? So <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I went up to the Latin Quarter and I looked at all these millions of tourists buying old books in Paris. And I thought to myself, how do I get this attention? So I sat there and I was observing all these booksellers for about a day. And I realized at 12 o'clock, exactly these lazy French people, <laughs> and I'm saying this jokingly, well, of course, going for lunch and not for five minutes, no, 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 for two hours. And, but all these tourists would still arrive and there would be no one there. So I did a deal with one of the booksellers. I said to them, hey, you'll get a free Lego man. Uh, if I'm allowed to stand outside your stand, keeping an eye on all your books, but then I can sell my Lego men. And he was a very nice guy, so he said yes. And within three days, I earned all the money for the rest of the trip, at least in my mind. Um, but it was a story about me being thrown into the cold water, so to speak, and start to see the world from a different point of view rather than little Denmark, five, five million people. Suddenly there was a real world, and I learned that at the age of eight. Oh, my goodness. You are even more extraordinary. And so could you even deal with other kids because you're in this other <laughs> sphere? I mean, really, uh, I mean, I'm serious. I was weird. I was weird, definitely. I think, I think the respect – so I was not teased in school, but I was not the popular kid either because I was, I was very serious. You know, I have to remember – when I reached the age of 12 and I started to work at Lego, I realized that Lego and the way they were communicating to, um, to, to the other kids was wrong. No, it didn't resonate with me. So I started up my own advertising agency a, a, a year or two later and got Lego as a client. And, and then I started to employ all my friends as well. And so I was kind of popular in the sense that I was giving them a salary. <laughs> you know, but. Wait a second, at age 14, is this yeah. age 14? You started yeah. your own advertising agency. I, I, I did, yeah. I sold it later on when I was 18 to a, a company called BBDO. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a, it's a very interesting journey because I – now, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, with his outliers, um, always talk about 10,000 hours. And I think it's fair to say if that theory holds that when I reached the age of 25, I had 10,000 hours of understanding communication and consumer insight because I literally did it from the age of eight, right? So I think that gave me an enormous benefit in the way that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that from when I was a child. Um, and I, I, and I fine-tuned an ability to see the world from another person's point of view. And that has followed me ever since. So when kids are growing up and they're 25 years of age and they don't know what to do, well, then that's where the clock is starting. Well, my clock started uh, basically 10 years earlier, right? That's so wonderful. When you, so in this journey as a young person, you're in business, you're seeing the world from others' views. Can you share some of the ahas, like the things that were like, wow, that didn't work so well? You know, we might <laughs> loosely call them mistakes, but I'd love to kind of hear the learning moments if you can recall them yeah. at that age. My gosh, I have a lot. I think I've only. I'm only driven by mistakes because that has made me better and stronger. Hopefully. Um, 
I'll tell you three stories which are giving you a sense of how, how I was bumping into brick walls. I remember when I sold my agency uh, to BBDO at the age of 18 and I, uh, I was going into this office and suddenly I was not the boss, but I was a senior member of the staff. And I was, I was driven, I know I have to admit it, I was very driven. So there was one lady, an art director, which couldn't stand me at all. Right, I was the worst invention on planet Earth for sure, um, and I remember we were sitting there, and 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 she was very nice and very polite to me. But then one morning, uh, I showed up a little bit earlier, and there was a long line of people going into an office, and they're all closing the door behind them. And I asked one of the colleagues, saying, "What well, what's going on?" And they said, "Well, she's actually doing interviews with people about you." said about me but <laughs> I was like well, how can you right so people were walking in and out of this office and she was creating this movement against me and um, I remember I said to myself well I didn't learn about that in school I, 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 I don't know what have I done wrong and I literally had no idea about what I'd done wrong I learned later on what I did wrong was not to work with people uh, I was just speeding ahead in my own little race because that was what I did from early childhood so suddenly I had to understand people, not just observe, but also become part of other people's point of view and create a sense of empathy. And I don't need to tell you when you're a lonely child, you probably are more introvert. You probably are a kid which is running your own little show in your own little world. But from one day or another, I had this uh, eureka moment. So that was the first time where I learned the whole ability to to, to understand corporate politics in a different way. And I did that at the age of 18. So again, it was much earlier than what most, most people would experience. The second thing I learned was very profound and highly controversial today. So I wanna warn you, this is a legal disclaimer. Don't be afraid, don't be offended, don't be angry at me. I did it through some very naive eyes. But when I was 24 years of age, that was in 1994, the very year where the World Wide Web was invented, the internet. Uh, I started up the first uh, internet company in Europe and um, it was part of BBDO as well. And just remember one thing, again, I'm from Denmark. In Denmark, 99.99% uh, you know, are Protestants, so we have one religion. Uh, if I saw a person with another skin color, it was super exotic because you will never see it really in, in Denmark back then. Uh, so here's what's going on. Um, I said to Lego, because it was one of my clients back then still, I said to them, hey, uh, guys, why don't we create a Lego advent candle calendar? Now, just for those of you who are not familiar with it, an advent calendar in Europe has 24 small lids. You can open them. And in the less sophisticated countries, there's a little drawing, which is very fun. And in the more sophisticated uh, countries, you have chocolate inside, which you can eat. I think it's probably 25 lits in the US, but at least in Europe, we are sort of more cost saving, so it's only 24. So um, there we are. I'm coming with this brilliant idea, I believe, to Leco. Leco is just like me, Protestants uh, by nature. So they said, wonderful idea. The internet has just been invented. So I'm developing this CGI programming-based Java script, which enables our kids to surf the net and open a new lit every day as Christmas goes on during December. Now, this is what happens. The 1st of December, we send out a mail to 262,000 followers of LEGO. This is the moment for LEGO to break through. And I will never forget, I, I go to, to work and I had basically 6,000 emails in my inbox. And I'm not kidding. 
and they're all complaints. Complaints about how dare you? I've loved Lego my whole life and you are religious. You're pushing a certain religion. I'm a Jewish person, I'm a Muslim person, I'm a whatever religion it is. And here's my photos from my grandmother playing with Lego and my granddad playing and I'll never touch this stuff again. And I go completely into panic. I have, I have no idea. I literally have no idea. So here's what, you, what I do. I call in 200 students. We're all sitting December the 1st and hammering away on our keyboards to give personalized messages to all these thousands of people apologizing for our rude behavior. And in the end of the day, I got lazy. I really got lazy. So I put in a standard signature line. And it says, we hope you'll continue playing with Lego. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from Lego. No. <laughs> no, you didn't, you didn't do that. Yes, oh, no. Too. That's what I did. We lost 6,000 customers. I'm almost starting to cry when I tell you the story because it's actually true. And that was the second mission I learned in life, that is to respect and honor other religions and other points of views. Um, I came from one point of view. I came from one culture where other religions hardly existed. And that helped me to, to pay my way through life. And I guess uh, ever since that has driven me to understand empathy and to put myself in the shoes of others. So I respect other cultures, but also so I understand their point of view. Because as you know, uh, Bill Bernbach, an advertising guy once said, he actually had a little note in his his pocket, and it had four words on it. Whenever he would have a conflict with anyone, not understand that person, have a fight with someone, not be able to convince the other person, he would pull out this little piece of paper with four words on it, and it would say, what if he was right? Ah, brilliant. That's so brilliant. I am just imagining, like, unbelievable panic i can feel i can see even though it was a bazillion years ago i can feel it and yeah. wow i yeah. can it's just now it's so clear to me now how because one of the things I, I i feel about you is you have you travel through with an incredible uh a cheerfulness a lightness not in a frivolous way but i think when you have owned that you have done those kinds of things and, and had a negative impact on people the way you didn't want to have and come through it you know, I, I feel that that must be a great kind of, I don't know, support system for yourself. Like, how bad could it be? Well, <laughs> There's yeah, got to be a I, way to recover. I think, I think so. I, and, and I think, frankly speaking, sometimes you can use it to your advantages in a positive way. I'll tell you one story which um, I rarely tell people, but which you know, tells it all, I think. So... As you started up saying on the opening of your show that I spend a lot of time in consumer homes, I've, I've been literally in more than 3,000 homes living with people, sleeping on strangers' beds, cooking with them, shopping with them, partying with them, um, in order to understand consumer psychology. And this is across more than 80 countries. Um, so over the years, I've seen my bit of reality, uh, which, by the way, has been extraordinary a powerful exercise because it helped me to become more extrovert. In fact, I think you can teach yourself to become extrovert if you train that muscle. And so some of the countries I've been to, of course, has been very glamorous. And I spend a lot of time in Japan, moving with Japanese consumers or in Nigeria, living on mud or in, uh, in Venezuela and in Caracas. Um, 
which I think today, sadly, is on the list of one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And um, just to put it into perspective, an average person living in Venezuela earns $1 a month. Uh, a Coca-Cola in Venezuela costs $1. Uh, so I don't need to tell you what's going on in that country at the moment. And that's exactly what I felt when I was there just some time ago and and by coincidence in the airport was kidnapped. And I was uh, dragged in, a, in the worst Hollywood movie you can imagine in a truck into a, a dark room somewhere in, outside Caracas. And was sitting there with my kidnappers trying to speak uh, a, an awful format of Spanish. Um, and, and they were trying to speak English. And I remember I said to myself, do you know what? Um, my philosophy has always been that through life, um, you always have to live your life as this is the last moment. Um, so I've always had the philosophy of if I would be bumped into a car, a car would bump into me and I would fly in the air and I would run my whole life reverse. The last sentence I would like to say is I did everything I wanted to do. And I was very blessed because that's the moment I was sitting there in the dark uh, with those three kidnappers next to me keeping a sharp eye on me, trying to negotiate a ransom, um, I said to myself, I actually did everything I wanted to do. So I think my balance in life was very different from most people being in that situation. So I concluded very simply that this is my moment to understand a piece of psychology I probably never will understand and never get the chance to understand ever in my life again, um, if I'm dying, but also if I'm surviving, the fact to understand a kidnapper's mind. So I started to do ethnographic interviews with them, as I would do in every other home I would be in the world, and and really exchange empathy in a very sincere way. And we we communicated for almost three days, and I asked them questions about things I don't think they've ever been asked about before in their lives. And after three days, one of the kidnappers stands up and he throws a bunch of keys at me, and he says, you can leave. And I look at him, and I say to him, I don't want to leave. And it's not because I was, I think, falling a victim of the Stockholm Syndrome in any way, shape or form, but I was so intrigued by what went on. I was so intrigued by the misery they were going through, the fact that they could not feed their children, and that's the reason why they're sitting there. The fact that one had all his children killed in front of him. Uh, all these things were so severe that I felt almost um, impolite to leave. So I stayed. And I stayed for another 24 hours and after 24 hours, there was a natural break in our conversation. And I stood up and I left. And I looked around at him. I'll never forget it as I opened the door with these keys. And I looked at this guy and he said to me, you know what I would have done 24 hours ago? I said to him, yes, you would have killed me, right? He said, yes, I would. Um, but you were sincere. And I'm still in contact with him today. Uh. That's the most amazing story of human connection. It is. It Thank is. You. Thank You're you welcome. for sharing that. Oh, my friend, uh, you have so much that you have done. And I know I'd love to segue to this latest creation of yours, um, this book that's been decade in the making. And perhaps you could tell uh, listeners about it. And um, I hope folks will, will check it out because... Um, I think it's a, we need um, some lightness, I think, in life these days. And um, so share, us, share with us a little bit about this common sense journey you've been on. 
Well, I think we've reached a point, all of us, in our lives where we frustrated. We frustrated about lack of common sense. I mean, one of my my favorite stories, which is a favorite story because it's so ridiculous, is that I was sitting in a hotel in Miami trying to watch television. And I was switching on the television, or rather I tried to, and because it had two on buttons, three numerical keyboards, it had six arrows going up and down. So I was fiddling around with this stuff, and, and after three minutes, I, I succeeded. I watched television. And then after five minutes, I wanted to switch off, but it had two off buttons. And when I pressed the first off button, the light was dimming in a kind of moody, sexy way in the room. And when I pressed the second one, the air conditioning system switched off. And <laughs> so I had to have my butt in the air, unplug the PowerPoint and the minibar and the television and everything, right? And I remember I thought with myself, how stupid I am. I'm getting so old now, I'm not even able to switch on the television. That thought stayed with me for a long time. Um, and coincidentally, three months later, and it sounds like it's a lie, it's true what I'm telling you now. I was sitting on this plane to JFK and I was sitting next to this engineer and we were talking. And, and at some stage I asked him, where are you from? And he said the name on that remote control. <laughs> And um, I'm a pretty straight shooter. So I pulled out the PowerPoint and I said, what the heck went wrong with you guys? And <laughs> he was like a deer in the head, like you could clearly see he didn't get it. So he explained how they had conflicts internally and the inventory, as he called it, the real estate on the remote control was in high demand. So the Netflix people would have some space and TiVo another one and recording a third one and television, a fourth one. And so they actually did a zone separation. They really separate everything into different zones. And they said, it's wonderful. We are no conflicts internally. It really works very well. And I looked at him staring in, staring in his eyes. And I said, except one thing, I don't know how to switch on your television. And I could kind of sense he didn't get it. But this was really the essence of why I began writing the book, because I realized two things, in fact, three. First, I realized that we increasingly, in our tech-obsessed world, blame ourselves. Oh, silly me. Why can't I remember that password, which is 16 digits long? It has two uppercase, uh, five lower cases. It has seven random numbers, two stars, and one add sign. And by the way, if you want to reuse that password you used last year where your mother's middle name was part of it, forget about it because that's banned, right? And, and so what we do in our world is we increasingly blame ourselves. The algorithms are starting to run the show and we become secondary. And it really frustrated me a lot because I was becoming part of that movement of frustrating myself, of, of feeling I was a stupid person. But wasn't the issue really that those people doing this stuff, creating that stuff was stupid not understanding their consumers. So that was the first thing I, I sort of took home. The second thing I realized was the remote control is kind of a symbol for much bigger, much more broken stuff going on within an organization. The fact that people actually um, feel miserable inside. They go to work and they hate working. In fact, today, the latest statistics are showing that close to 80% of every staff feel unhappy at work. And in fact, if they could, they would change work. And I think with the Zoom obsession we're going through right now with back-to-back -back meetings, no breaks, no pause, no reflections. And finally, when we done all our Zoom calls at 8 p.m., we throw ourselves at the couch, exhausted, and then it's time to do our work. I mean, with all that stuff, what's happening in our lives is we are 
becoming very demotivated. So that's the second thing what you know, drew me to, to write this book. And the third thing was an, an profound realization through the whole writing process that there was this very strong and there is a very strong correlation between empathy and common sense. Empathy is, as you know, the uh, capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing from within their frame of reference. That is the capacity to place yourself or oneself in another's position. And I think we're increasingly losing that, that skill set in our world today. So I really don't care about what other people are feeling. This self-fulfilling media bubble, the social media is just reaffirming what my views are. And that, of course, I don't need to tell you through my history has resonated a lot with me because that's where I came from originally with my very narrow-minded view of the world, which expanded systematically as I grew older. So these three com things combined really became the creation of the Ministry of Common Sense, which, by the way, exists in seven of the larger companies in the world, where we set up ministries with the sole purpose of removing one stupidity at a time and free out the air so we could be motivated as staff and so the customers could start smiling again. Ah, this is so genius and I love the root of it. And I'm thinking of our friend Gary Ridge who runs WD-40 yeah. and he has that group, the Stupid Policies uh, Committee or whatever. And they, their job is to run around and you know reinvent and, and take away the things that don't make sense. Martin, exactly. when you work with these companies, right? It's because it's to your point, it's so just common sense. Listen to the customer. What do you find is the biggest hang up for them to get out of their own way? And I know that's a big question, but you know, you see so much. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what if you could get one thing. What do you see that's really holding them back? Well, it actually ironically is the lack of empathy. Because I'll tell you a story. Two young kids are sitting in a dome room. They're smoking weeds. They're off their head. The kid is taking a photo of his friends, uploading it on social media. Hell breaks loose. Parents are furious. And the day after, his friend is saying, I wish we could have retracted that photo. And that became the creation of Snapchat, which is today a $50 billion company. Snapchat, like basically every single other um, startup, is created based on empathy. It's the founder having a feeling an experience, a disaster, a conflict, an opportunity. And through that feeling, it drives that person so much that it becomes a new company. As a company grows older, empathy disappears. The revolving doors of new staff is coming in and leaving. Lawyers and compliance folks are taking over. The founders are sidetracked. And suddenly the company becomes more obsessed with itself. It starts to see the world not from outside in, but from inside out. It starts to drink of its self-manufactured Kool-Aid and it established along the way what I call an immune system, a defense mechanism for change. And a defense mechanism for change is really, I think, best illustrated or exemplified through an experiment done some years ago with chickens. Chickens were put into a cage, stocked in there for about half a year. And one day they were let out on the beautiful green grass and the sun was shining and the birds were singing and the chickens went out. And guess what? After 30 seconds, they went straight back in again. And I call that the chicken cage syndrome. It is the fear of the unknown. And that is the essence of the answer to your question. There's two answers. One is 
the fear of the unknown and the lack of empathy. And those two factors are directly correlated with common sense or the opposite, which is nonsense. <laughs> Martin, this is so, it's so amazing. And I have to draw the relation to the whole notion of say it skillfully, because the thing that's hardest is that trusting of our own self, because most people aren't in good relationship with themselves. To your point about the frustrations we experience and all, we want to blame others, but a lot of it starts within. And that ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes and just consider, wow, what if, what if I'm not right and they're right, is what gives birth to the opportunity for people to have these robust communications and, frankly, to raise in any given company that, gosh, this, this process, this way, this whatever doesn't really seem to be serving us. Maybe I should raise it rather than just execute along with it because that's the program. So it's just it's um, wonderful to hear the, how these things weave together. Um, I'd love to, to segue because, you know, we talked about the, the fact that you've been challenging the conventional thinking. You're often telling people things they may not want to hear. I know you're super skillful given all that you've learned starting at age eight. Um, were you always skillful or is there a conversation or a situation right now that you could bring up that perhaps we could talk through and help you be a little bit more skillful? Oh, do you know what? There's a lot of uh, examples. I, I, what I've learned over the years is that cultures define who you are. There's a German term for that called Kulturbrillen. It means culture glasses. And what we know today is that uh, the more you see the world through one point of view, the more you basically become that environment. Uh, that's the reason why when I move into people's homes, I always go and have a haircut first. I talk to the hairdresser, I talk to the community leader, to the church goers, to see and feel the view of the world through their point of view, you know, mind. And, and, and that helps me to understand the context in which people are born and raised. Um, to give you an example about Kulturbrillen, in Denmark, um, you will notice a small country. And uh, Paco Underhill, a good friend of mine, an author, he's uh, written a, a global bestseller called Why We Buy, Paco said to me when he was visiting me back then when I lived in Denmark, he said, hey, Martin, why do people walk so unstructured on the street? And I looked at him and I really didn't get it. But he was right. I had become part of my own Kool-Aid drinking, right? Um, and what I'm saying with that is that um, one of the, the weaknesses I've had is I've been extraordinary direct um, because it comes from my culture. Uh, I think the Dutch people, so people from Holland, are probably the most direct people on planet Earth. And I think the Danes, so Danish people, people from Denmark, are probably number two. And it's both a curse and a blessing. Uh, it, it is a blessing because you know where you have a Dane when you meet them. Um, but it's also a curse because you offend a lot of people along the way. And one of the things I've had to, to learn is to breathe uh, in between my sentences and try to synchronize my own wavelength with the person I'm talking with instead of just saying things for the sake of saying things because it's honest, but it may be very hurtful. Um, and it's something I'm still struggling with, uh, to be frank. But what I tend to do is to say two things to myself. One is, um, do I really understand the point of view that person is coming from? Or am I just saying something for the sake of of doing it. And the second thing is always to ask for permission to reflect my view. 
but do it in a sincere way so the person has a solid opportunity to opt out. And the number of times I haven't done that has been pretty you know, profound because uh, before I had those almost uh, roadblocks holding myself back from creating conflicts, um, you know, when I didn't have those roadblocks, I, I really would have a lot of conflicts and people would find it really hard to relate to this guy having such a strong point of view of, about whatever. Um, so, uh, yes, um, what have I learned out of it? Um, do you know what? I learned to say I'm sorry. And I've learned to uh, show my own weaknesses. And I, I, I do think, I know it's a cliche what I'm saying right now, but I actually mean it, that um, I think it's you first have self-confidence the moment where you're willing to and open to share your own weaknesses and actually mean it. I think a lot of leaders don't share their weaknesses because they want to come across as being strong. Um, but I do think that empathy is, is collapsing along the way as well. I think when you can start to recognize a human person behind that surface, you can relate to that person. And suddenly it's a co-creation of change. Um, so yes, any example I can give you are basically the same. It's a person I said something to, it was well-meaning but it was just not received the way I'd hoped for. And actually I was doing it the wrong way. I apologized and I learned that in fact, apologizing and being sensitive is probably a way forward rather than being stubborn and self-focused, right? Martin, you have been so generous and I, um, I'm hoping everyone around the world is just feeling how genuine you are uh, sharing the growth journey that you're on and the, just the extraordinary energy you have about it. My, my only last question, we could go on forever, but my last question is how, how was it for you? What was it like for you to share your story? I, no, I love it. I, I love sharing my own story because, not because I love listening to my own voice, because believe me, when you're launching a book, you get pretty sick and tired of it. But uh, I love it because every time I say something, I start to, decompartmentalize, de-defragmentate the knowledge in a different way. A little bit like a computer. You know, when you defragment your computer, you, you store memory in a different way and it becomes more efficient. When I tell this story to you guys, it also helps me to put another perspective on it and put it into different compartments in my brain and with that to come at ease with it. And what more can you ask for? So with that, Molly, thank you for asking me. Well, Thank you. That's helping us uh, see the curse and blessings of our ways, the power of the breath, the um, beauty and the necessity of empathy. Um, you, my friend, are so inspirational. So I really, I thank you for joining me, uh, for who you are in the world. I'm here for you. If there's any way I can be of help to you, please let me know. And most of all, thank you for being a part of the solution in this world. We need you. Thank you, Martin. Bless you. Ah, what a gift. It's made my month. Okay, I'm very excited now to switch gears, and we have from the Atlanta area, Vince on the line. Vince, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Hey, Molly. Uh, glad to be here, and thanks for having me. Well, my friend, what's the Say It Skillfully challenge you'd like to talk through today? Uh, uh, first of all, I, I, I thought... Martin was amazing. So, uh, you know, waiting uh, was absolutely, that was a gift for me. Um, you know, 
I, uh, you know, I've followed you for a long time on, on uh, LinkedIn, uh, even to the point where as my daughter got older and graduated college and went to work in the real world, she would call me and say, oh, I had this difficult conversation. And I'd say, you need to connect with Molly. Um, because she can really help you in these situations. And then the other week I found myself in a situation. Um, I uh, recently started doing business development for uh, a very large um, local company uh, that I have a tremendous amount of respect for, not just the company, but the leadership and the people. Um, And, Three weeks into it, I'm having a call with uh, the head of the business unit that I'm working with, and um, I could tell clearly she was not happy with where I was, and she said to me, how do you feel you're doing? And in my career, whenever I was managing people or supporting people, um, and I was not pleased with their progress, I would ask them, how do you feel you are doing? And I answered very honestly, I'm not as far along with this as I wanted to be three weeks in. Uh, And I didn't offer any excuses, like, you know, training is having to take place, a lot of things having to take place simultaneously with doing the work. Um, and, uh, I was kind of taken aback by it because, um, if someone answered me, uh, if I said, how do you feel you're doing? And they said, I'm not, I'm not as far along as I wanted to be. Um, even if I agreed with them, I would offer number one, some encouragement. I would point out, well, you have done this and this. Uh, and then what can I help you do so that when we meet next week, you'll feel like you're much farther along. And there was none of that. And the first thing I thought is, what would Molly say? <laughs> Thank you, Vince. I appreciate your support. <laughs> and I'm here to help your daughter, too. And I, um, I'm grateful that you're sharing this because I think a lot of folks can appreciate this. So I would just I would start with you want to be your best friend, right? And I understand that in your experience, when people ask you, it may not be a good thing, which could then put us into mm-hmm. already a defensive, defending posture. Totally understandable. I would encourage just right. you know, genuine curiosity, a lightness, um, and and assume positive intent. Someone wants to know how you think you're doing. So I think that this is. I'm not trying to be salesy, but at the same time, as you've said, you're three weeks into the job. You're like, where's the coffee pot? You know, you're just, you're like, it's, it's pretty early days. (laughs) Right. Right. So I think in the moment, it's important just to kind of breathe and exhale. And if it's, whether it's a zoom or, you know, in-person thing, just keep your demeanor light and, and positive. I think that sends a lot of energy and it's an energy of confidence as you heard Martin talk about the self-confidence. So that's one. And then I think, you know, you're peeling it back take a breath, think a little bit. So well, let me think about this along uh, two angles. What do I think is going great? One or two things that are going really well that you're happy about. 
So you're not making a judgment mm-hmm. on it. You're kind of sharing. And then I'd like to see, given that, you know, it's week three, the next thing that's in line is X, Y, Z. And, um, you know, to the extent that you need some help or you want to thank the person for things that they've done, you can do that. But a little less back and forth, maybe think of it as a, like you're on the outside in looking at it. And things have gone well, for sure, right? And I know for people mm-hmm. you're achieving, you always focus on things you could be better. Just give yourself credit for what you've done well. And then, you know, look at the person, see what they offer. To your point, you would expect someone to say, right. wow, that's so great. I'd like to help you if they don't. So, you know, one thing that would be super helpful for me, and I know that you're here to help me, you know, be my best and support the organization I'd be grateful if you would consider helping me do X. Right. Because I think of my, I'm here to help you be successful. I know you want me. So if that's, if your leader's not leading with that, Vince, you lead the person there, right? So you show what great looks like and go from there. We're just going to pause here. One thing for folks starting new roles, really important because it's like, sometimes it seems like this is the job description and I read it, sitting down and being really clear. Hey, what success look like a month in, six weeks, eight weeks, three, you know, whatever the time frame is. And just be sure that with your um, supervisor that there's a, if you will, shared reality, because that's going to really help the subsequent conversations flow, right? So if you've done that, then that's a good thing. I'm just going to pause. Is that, is that right. landing? That's landing. That's hitting home. Okay. So, my friend, I'm going to encourage you. What do you think is the next step you can take to, to kind of move forward and, and be more proactive about your performance with the, with the company? Well, I, I think the next step, to your point, um, is let them know right, um, why. I, my answer to the question you know, I'm not as far along as I wanted to be. Um, and what I need to do is say, how can you help me or figure out what I need from them to get from where I am today to where I want to be a week from now, two weeks from now? Fantastic. Fantastic. And a way to re- Yes. So a way to yeah. give you an on-ramp. I just want to, ref- I reflected on our conversation. I appreciate you bringing it up. And I'm realizing this. And you just roll with it and you just move on from there, Vince. Listen, I'm cheering for you, okay? Perfect. And so you know how to reach me. You loop back with me and then let me know how it goes. Thank you so much. That's awesome. You take good care. Thanks for being part of the solution, Vince. Okay, we're going back across to Europe and Virginia from the UK is on the line. Virginia, welcome to the show. Hi, Molly. Absolutely super. <laughs> I had to say super though, to be part of your show. Thank you very much for the invite. Really, it's my joy to have you on, and uh, I'm looking forward to the Say It Skillfully challenge you have. Um, first of all, just want to say absolutely brilliant, because I actually listened to Martin from Denmark um, on the whole speech, something just amazing guy and something I'm very passionate about, especially about empathy in the workplace and that split between emotional, cognitive and compassionate empathy. And the one thing I think we're missing is compassionate empathy in the workplace, um, you know, and that's dealing with the whole person. But that took me back to an instant because I was actually going to come on with something else. And I thought, no, this has inspired me to talk about something else. 
So I want to go back because it's reflected on something that happened to me many, many years ago. And how do I put this? Um, to, to put it succinctly, we were led by, I'm going to change the names. I'm going to call them um, Frank and Fred. So Frank was the head of the department and I was um, part of the department flying down to London to be part of this big major project. And we were having a celebration weekend and there was one gentleman who's senior part of the team who was very much, um, I'm going to say bullied, Um, he very much ostracized and he actually sat down the front of the bus with another colleague. Now the head of the department, Frank, was making fun of and saying some pretty terrible things on the bus and I don't know whether he had a few drinks and he started to sort of shout at Frank down the end of the bus and as pack animals you know we all you know sort of that fear that comes in sort of oh ha 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 you know embarrassed laughing but I didn't laugh and it was spotted that I didn't laugh (laughs) and um, the head of the department zoomed his head on me and he said you're not laughing Virginia what do you think now I'd never really had a voice and I remember, you know, you say, talk about saying something skillfully. I don't think I said this very skillfully at all. So I thought, okay, what's my value base here? And I thought, I like this gentleman who's been picked on. I don't think this is on. So I turned around and I said, I don't think it's very funny. And um, I actually like this gentleman, Frank, sat at the, the front of the bus. The whole bus went quiet because I... This was the head of the department. I embarrassed him in front of everybody. <laughs> and basically, um, I handed my resignation in about three months later <laughs> because my job became untenable after that. It just, it was a really bad thing to do. And I, I, I often reflect on that and think, what would I have done differently? Knowing what I know now, what, 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 what would I have done differently? What would Molly say to that? What would Molly say after looking at your, your LinkedIn? What would Molly say to that? That's a great one. And I, um, wow, I could, I could feel that. I've been on those buses, you know, it's a bit of a bit of hoopla. Maybe people have some drinks and I understand the power dynamics. So thank you for raising that, Virginia. You said Frank is the head of the department name. That's the guy who. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll call it. We'll, yeah, call, we'll him call, Frank. Him Fred, call him Frank. And, and we'll call the one that was being bullied and picked on Frank. <laughs> Frank. Okay. So Fred is the head there. So, you know, again, and I just want to um, kudos for you because if, if an environment is really such that that sort of bullying is okay and, you know, that's, that's not for you to fix, right? I think it's good for you to move on. So I'm glad that you did. You know, I think in that moment saying, you know, Fred, I appreciate that you might think it's uh, funny and I respect that that's your point of view. And, you know, I just have to say for me, you know, it landed very differently and it, it you know, wasn't wasn't really funny for me. And I, I actually felt a little bad for our colleague. I know you didn't mean to uh, come across negatively, um, but I appreciate your asking. You know, that's not going to mm-hmm. change this person, strikes me as not. But I think what it does is it um, honors that there's a different point of view, I think, to Martin's point, that people think things differently. And you're, you know, letting you know that he didn't think he was trying to be mean, even though we might really believe he was trying to be mean, right? <laughs> so you're giving him an out and you're taking well, perception the high road. Is reality going back to Martin's point, isn't it? Perception is yeah. reality, but yeah. 
Yeah, right. And so then I and and the reason I think this is important, people might say, yeah, give it up. I would say that the the big thing here is that you, Virginia, are being true to yourself. Right. So you're you able know, to do yeah. something and and um, and not have regrets. And and, yeah. and that to me is is the most important thing. And I think that was the the one thing that sort of, you know, could I have said it better? Yes. I mean, I, you just put it so eloquently, Molly. I mean, would, would it have changed it? I, I, I doubt it. And my belief from the personality and the sort of behaviors that were being driven, but could I put it better? Yes, I could have. Would it have changed the outcome? Possibly not. But I think the one thing that sort of made me realize, and I was in my 20s, this, um, was actually to stick to my value base and be congruent to who I am and what I am. And, and your values within organizations, they have to align. And, and if they don't, then, um, you know, you, you, it, it becomes untenable, doesn't it? So alignment to, to, to the values of the behavior of the, of, of the people in the organization and the culture of the organization is very important. Oh, essential, I essential. I it differently. Yeah, well, I appreciate your considering perhaps ways that you could, and I love that you raise this notion of congruency with your values, and it creates that stability and groundedness for your own self. And from that groundedness and stability, we're in the best position to serve others. And I can feel that in you. You have a groundedness in you, and I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative you called in. Um, you know how to reach me. I'm here for you, and uh, I'll look forward to being on contact and LinkedIn, and don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of more help. And I thank you, Virginia, for being part of the solution. You take good care. Ah, what a gift the show has been. My thought for the week, courtesy of my dear, inspiring friend, Martin, truth is always a mixture of multiple points of view. See the world from another point of view. And that's a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem.
Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 